You are listening to KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Radio Boise, independent media for Boise and beyond. This is The Big Tent. I am your host, Jen Schneider. I'm here with my co-host, Corey Cook, both from the School of Public Service at Boise State. We kind of have an announcement to make. We do. Hi, Luke. We have a new (laughs) (laughs) co-host. Yeah, so if you are a long-time listener of The Big Tent. since March, (laughs) which is a long time. Then you'll notice that, that that Justin Vaughn is not here. He was our uh, co-host, and actually the Big Tent was his brainchild. We're super grateful to him for that. But Justin has moved on from the university. He's moving into the private sector, which makes us sad but happy for him. And so we have enticed Professor Luke Fowler to be our new co-host. And longtime guests, meaning those who were listening last week, recognize <laughs> Luke from... <laughs> from two, it was two you know, weeks, two weeks ago. ago. Right, right. Two weeks ago, and we got a lot of good feedback about the southern stylings <laughs> of Dr. Luke Fowler. <laughs> so we're glad you're here. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> it was so much fun last time. <laughs> Fantastic. And we're hoping that we can convince Justin to come back once in a while and, and be a guest or a guest uh, host for us. So. And an underwriter now that he's in the private sector. Well, there so. you go. Absolutely. have <laughs> got to ask him for some money. Right. All right, good. So the topic of the show this week um, probably won't come as a surprise to most people. We're going to talk about immigration. It's been everywhere in the news recently. Um, we want to think about it from um, for this uh, first segment of the show, more from a historical perspective and thinking about the ways that the discussion or the discourse around immigration maybe has changed, in particular from the way it was talked about or debated about under Obama to the way it's talked about now under Trump? Well, I think uh, one of the the key things that sticks out is a lot of um, what uh, a colleague of ours, Steve Udick, would call dehumanizing language, um, talking about uh, immigrants. Um, and, you know, one, one example that's happened recently is referring to the, M- the MS-13 gang mm-hmm. um, as animals, right? And so when we do use that type of language and, and rhetoric, of course, like w- the ideas that we frame these people as not deserving the same treatment that we would treat other humans with right and so there for policy solutions doesn't don't have to treat them with the same rights that we would uh, treat our neighbors or our friends with um and so i think that's a that's a really core change has happened and trump uh for better or worse has done a really good job of framing policy narratives um around certain uh issues and one of those is immigration and his dehumanizing language has worked very well as framing the uh, framing immigrants those that are are new to the uh, america not citizens um, as deserving less than American citizens, right? Um, and so that's been a, a really polar opposite change of what Ob- how uh, President Obama spoke about them. Right, and the, and the recent conversation about suspending, uh, you know, essentially civil civil rights for for people who were um, accused of being in the country illegally, and arguing essentially they, they deserve no due process rights is a f- is a pretty loud claim. And Meaning they don't deserve. Uh, access to a trial or to be seen by a judge. Right. And so, you know, is it a presidential tweet? But the idea that we should suspend due process as it relates to immigration issues is, is part of this, you know, we wouldn't imagine doing that to sort of, you know, in an equal rights framework, we wouldn't imagine that. But again, Trump's rhetoric is such that we, you know, we're contemplating the idea of whether folks who are accused of, of being in the country uh, without documentation deserve any due process to be able to even contest that, whether it's uh, trying to trying to get amnesty of some sort, or whether it's even trying to be able to prove that you are actually in the country legally, the due process shouldn't exist. Is a again the, the the rhetoric has certainly heated up since the Obama administration. 
Well, and I mean, it, it's a great reference. Um, and going back, I uh, like the Supreme Court ref, uh, decision on the travel ban that we'll get to later. I mean, one thing that they do, uh, I think it's uh, Judge uh, Sotomayor makes the reference to the Japanese internment camps case, right? And says that, you know, we're treating this in a, a lot of the same way. Um, the, of course, the majority of the court didn't agree with that. Right. But I mean, she certainly makes that analogy and tries to connect those two things together. Yeah, I just want to go back to the, the dehumanizing rhetoric piece. I mean, I think on top of that, there's also um, what what some scholars call strategic ambiguity at play. So the constant references to MS-13 are really interesting because that is, in fact, a pretty vicious, violent gang. Its numbers aren't necessarily increasing. I think we're seeing some scholarship about that now. But it's pretty rough stuff. The problem is the conflation of MS-13 gang members with all Latino immigrants, right? And that's where I think some of that dehumanizing rhetoric becomes especially problematic. One can make, I think, claims about MS-13 being dangerous without then saying, therefore, there should be no immigration from Central American, Latin American right. countries. Well, you know, and of course, uh, I mean, the most famous way that Trump has done this is the bad hombres comment, right? There's drug dealers, rapists, and some good people. But I mean, he's framing the entire immigrant class as nothing but criminals coming here to take advantage of our laws. Uh, but, you know, looking at, uh, I think there was an NPR piece this week that talked about, you know, immigration and the numbers and all this. Um, but one of the interesting trends they, they talk about is that in recent years, economic immigration has decreased. And it's really about, um, well, people, particularly in South America, trying to escape political violence and, and coming here for uh, refugee status, more or less. Um, but, you know, there's the famous case that uh, Sessions uh, pushed back on with the domestic violence and saying America wasn't in the business, more or less, of protecting women from domestic violence. But in this case, this Guatemalan woman had fled her home country because the political institutions there weren't set up in a way to stop her from, you know, violence in her home. Uh, and then you look at some of the other countries where, you know, there's actually war going on and violence. And so that's really what's pushing a lot of these people. So it's not that they're necessarily the perpetrators of violence, but the victims of violence. And and that's one of the reasons they're coming to America. So I, I look a lot at, um, uh, at, at cities and, and how cities have adopted um, these sanctuary policies, which, again, I think, you know, as a, as a long history in the United States, which I think most folks have not understood, I mean, it really was uh, police and sheriffs who initially were pursuing sanctuary policies in cities across the United States. And it was largely around trying to be able to um, enforce, you know, lo actually locable laws. There's a, obviously a... a um, uh, a, uh, a court decision in, in Washington that prevents local jurisdictions from detaining people for, nas for national immigration claims when their time is up to being held in local in local jurisdictions and so forth. But in any case, um, you know, interestingly, I mean, I think Trump, starting with the, with his convention speech, has 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 really shifted the debate around sanctuary into a one around sanctuary cities about sanctuary from violence, right? And so he's been able to, uh, whether it's Kate Steinle, the, the woman who was killed uh, by an undocumented immigrant in San Francisco or other victims of crimes, have been able to say, you know, sanctuary is we're sanctuary from violence committed by undocumented immigrants and really been able to sort of weaponize this this sanctuary city issue, which was really largely, as I said, fueled by police departments saying we want to we want to hold people for local crimes. We, we, we are not federal law enforcement agents. We want to make sure that people who are who are victims of crimes locally feel safe talking to the police. And we want to be able to comply with a federal order which says we can't hold people in our jails longer than um, 
allowable by, by the local statutes, um, has turned into this question of, do we want to give MS-13 sanctuary, or do we want to give sanctuary to the people who are, would otherwise be victims of this, of this violence? And I think that rhetorical tool has been, has completely recast the immigration debate. Oh, especially for the right, right? I mean, on the left, you mentioned the Korematsu decision being uh, sort of rejected by the recent Supreme Court ruling, but I think for the left, the framing of, oh my gosh, we're having this very sort of World War II redux, it's happening again, and if good people don't stand up and stop stop it, we're gonna see fascism, we're gonna see the Holocaust uh, resurge. And on the right, is being framed as, well, who are we gonna protect? Right. Who who deserves to be kept safe, and who are the really the really violent ones in this case? And it makes it, I think so. Those two groups really can't talk to each other. Right. Well, and also point out that I, I think there's an administrative challenge, and not just a policy and a rhetoric, rhetoric challenge here. Um, that when it comes to separating these two groups out, like part of it is how do we make this work on the ground and in practice? And that's one of the things that I think we really struggle with when it comes to immigration is figuring out how to put this stuff in place. And of course, the separating families thing uh, that has been all over the news lately, I mean, that is an administrative challenge. Um, that is trying to figure out how to make this stuff work. And unfortunately, some people made some really bad decisions there. But I mean, that's kind of one of the realities of implementing a policy like this is that we're gonna be faced with some really difficult choices. And it's this conflating of criminal law and civil law, right? And how do because because immigration violations are civil law, they aren't they aren't criminal law. And so how do you enforce essentially criminal law like enforcement mechanisms in a civil law environment is part of what this I think administrative confusion is coming from. Yeah, figuring out how to get those families back together is going to be a real challenge. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what we think the immigration debate is really about. Hail to the spirit that can unite us, for we do truly live in figures. And with little steps, the clocks go on alongside our essential day. Without knowing our true place, we act out of real relationship. Antenna feel, antenna, and the empty distance bore. Reception. Radio Boise. Your ears make us. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Big Tent. I am your co-host, Jen Schneider. I am here with our new co-host, Luke Fowler, and our longtime <laughs> co-host, Corey Cook. It's kind of amazing that after only eight weeks, we're like right, version two. Right. So. Um, we are talking about the immigration debate today, and one of the things we wanted to talk about in this segment is what is this um, immigration debate really about? Because some of the interesting sort of hot takes on immigration, this immigration dilemma that we're uh, talking about is that the number of immigrants isn't actually increasing if you look at it historically, the immigrants coming across the border. And so if there isn't a sort of shift in the problem, there's certainly a shift in the perception of the problem or there's political advantage to be gained. So when you think about the immigration debate and you think about why this, why now, what kinds of uh, responses do you have? Well, I think there, there are a few dimensions to that. One is obviously, you know, I, I tend to think everything comes back to economic insecurity. And so these, these broader issues about the changing economy and sort of, you know, Folks grappling with under, you know, tr trying to understand why it is that even in an economy that that is booming, wa wages are stagnating, and and trying to get a, you know, an understanding of, you know, is it is it caused by trade practices? Is it caused by mechanization of means of production? Is it caused by um, you know competition from from immigrant workers? I think people are trying to you know in their day to day life are trying to get an understanding about why is it that all I'm hearing about is how the stock market is booming and yet my wages are stagnating. 
writing. And so to me, that's a big a big piece of it. Part of it also is you know you have this uh, fairly dramatic. Um, and, and, we, and for the most part, our, our, our changes from one administration to another um, typically actually, I think, frustrates people that there, there aren't radical changes, right? But you have a pretty significant break uh, between the Obama administration and the Trump administration. And so things like you know, the action that, that Obama took on DACA, um, Trump, you know, that will sunset on a date and effectively created these, created crises where now there is a demand for Congress to respond in a certain way. And so part of it, you know, the, the heightened rhetoric around the, the election and the desire from the Trump administration to have a sharp break from the previous administration, oftentimes in rhetoric, we, we, we see differences between Democratic and Republican administrations, but there's a fairly steady train on immigration policy between the administrations where there wasn't that big a difference between the Bush Bush. Uh, w administration and Obama, you're now seeing this pretty significant break. And, and the result of that is Congress needs to act because there is now a deadline by which, um, you know, the, the deferred action for children of immigrants is now, um, you know, those, those folks are no longer able to stay in the country legally. And so you now have it in, the, in, the, in our political institutions a need to respond uh, to these, these now real deadlines in policy. I mean, it's a, that's a pretty significant difference, again, between the right and the left, which is that it's these economic anxieties or the increasing split between the rich and the poor on the right seems to be projected onto people of color, immigrants, Black Lives Matter, you name it. On the left, we see it sort of, a, I think, um, more like the Bernie Sanders excitement around that. Um, angst again uh, around big business and things like big banks. Um, so it's interesting to think about economic anxiety and racism on the right and the ways in which that is really manifesting in a profound way through the immigration debate as well. Well, and I, I might cast this a, a little different than Corey is I think there's a, a strong element of xenophobia here. And I think that is something that's inherent in our American political culture is that we just don't like people that are different from us. Um, strangers scare us. Uh, and I, and because my mother's probably listening, I'll tell a story about her. Uh, and so if you think I have a, uh, a terrible Southern accent, you should hear her speak. Um, but so she moved from uh, Mississippi up to uh, St. Louis to work for the headquarters of a major American corporation. And so she told me that, uh, you know, there was times that she really didn't like living in St. Louis because people would listen to her Southern accent and be like, oh, where are you from? And just look at her very suspiciously, look like her, uh, uh, talk to her, maybe like she wasn't as smart as they were. Um, surprised that she had, you know, had all her teeth and her shoes on and all this because she was from Mississippi. And so, I mean, like there's not that big of a difference between Mississippi and Missouri, but certainly that, that difference in culture, the difference in accents created this huge divide. And I think to a certain extent, we're experiencing some of that in Boise, right? With the immigration and those would be immigration with an E rather than an I, right? That we don't have these people that are, you know, coming in from California and all that, um, that there's this certain amount of xenophobia and distrust in those new populations that are coming. And that that's an important aspect of all of this as well. I think that's right. And the demographic changes are, are, are obviously happening across the country, but they're being read very differently. And so, you know, just, just the other night, we have this, um, what is being called now the Tea Party of the Left, right? You have a 28-year-old Latino woman taking out uh, the chair of the Republic, uh, sorry, the House Democratic Caucus. Um, a huge upset, right? And and that's being read in two different ways. One is, um, you know, older white, 20, 20 year uh, re- representative of a district that had become increasingly diverse, who didn't stay in touch with his younger constituents and some of the demographic changes. And the other way it's being read is this is the quote the Browning of America. And 
And so her victory is being seen both as a, um, on, for, from some, a real sign of, of this optimism of millennials getting involved in politics and this generational demographic change. And on the other side, if you read some of the, the, the things on the internet is very much this is the threat, is this woman who identifies as a democratic socialist, who is a, a woman of color, um, effectively defeating a longtime Democratic congressman is an example of this of this uh, demographic change. It'll be interesting to see if that same sort of dynamic plays out here with the gubernatorial race. I mean, we maybe saw something similar happen with Paulette Jordan defeating A.J. Belikoff, right? Same sort of dynamic. Right. And so, again, how does that does that get read as a as a generational change and a demographic change that is a positive and that brings renewed energy into the country? Or is that Again, something that needs to be resisted. This fuels the xenophobia, as um, you know, that that this is sort of the last gasp of being able to prevent this sort of demographic transition. Well, I think there's also, and something that we're not talking about enough, at least in the media, is our population changes and the demographics of this country. Right? I mean, we have an aging population in a lot of part. The reason that we have upward population growth is because of in migration. Um, that if we shut down our borders, the American country would be shrinking. We'd be looking at the same problems that Japan and Russia are. We're stagnant populations, which means stagnant economic growth. Um, and so immigration has always been a huge part of the growth of America. And I don't think that's something that we consider enough in a lot of these debates. Luke, when you uh, talk about xenophobia, as you were earlier, do you think folks are associating the kinds of changes that you mentioned, like cultural changes or feeling out of place, for example, with economic losses or with a nostalgia for a time past? You know, I think it's I think it's both of those things. I, I think they're looking at, you know, their communities and they're not recognizing them anymore. Um, I feel, feel like they're being or they think they're being displaced in a lot of different ways um, that things aren't the same. Um, and again, uh, I, I grew up in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and I, you know, hear my stories from my dad about, you know, he how he knows everybody he used to work down in, you know, the corner gas station and the grocery stores. And there was this very community feel and a lot of social capital there. But I mean, certainly when you look decades later, those same type of feelings aren't there. The city's grown. The demographics have changed. Um, you know, you see white flight from some of the communities. Um, and so all of these things are a lot different and so when you go back to those old places that you might have seen when you're a kid it's just different and it feels very scary and i mean almost overwhelming for some and to get back to the earlier point that each of you made right so so immigration in the united states is down uh, the data is very clear that first generation immigrants are less likely to commit crimes than than second generation or native or you know multi-generational americans right um uh, that that crime in so-called sanctuary cities is lower uh, than it is in cities that, that don't have sanctuary policies, and yet again, none of that matters in this debate, right? And so it's not. This is not an evidence-based debate. This is this is very much a question about what what the country is and what it's becoming and what it ought to be, um, and and the and the rhetoric around it doesn't match any sort of. You know, data or objective analysis, and that again, I think as we as we look at the politics around that explains a lot of you know. I think we'll talk about the next segment. How does this immigration bill blow up? How is this splitting both parties um, as it addresses these issues? Um, are, are really grappling with it. you know this this isn't a data question, right? This is largely really tapping question. into these values that are mm-hmm. that are much deeper than that. All right. Thanks to you both. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the recent Supreme Court decision to uphold the Trump administration's travel ban. We'll be right back. Hey there, everybody. This is John Dwyer from The OCs, and you're listening to KRBX. 
Hey, welcome back to The Big Tent. This is Jen Schneider. I'm here with Corey Cook and Luke Fowler. Uh, we're going to spend some time that during this last segment talking a little bit about the Supreme Court decision to uphold the Trump administration's travel ban, think a little bit about why it's significant, and then we're going to talk about the failure in the House of an immigration bill, bipartisan immigration bill, I believe. Uh, Luke, do you want to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court decision? Yeah, uh, so this was... Um a pretty major decision in a lot of ways, at least politically. Uh, legally, not really surprising, though, at least a, a lot of the commentaries are talking about. And I, I think the, one of the headlines maybe in the Washington Post was this wasn't a surprising uh, decision for any other president. Um, because when you looked at what the DOJ argued, the Department of Justice argued in justifying this, which was that this was a clear power of the president. They were doing this for security measures. All the administrative rules support this. The problem was, and what the state of Hawaii, because this was Trump versus or v. the state of Hawaii, um, they argued was, well, if you go back to his tweets, if you go back to campaign rhetoric, he's not talking about security. He's talking about majority Muslim countries. And so this travel ban is about religion not about security. And that, at least that was a, the argument. Well, the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to accept that. Um, and, and was really the, the surprising part, and maybe the, the most important precedent that was set here, was that these tweets can't be used against the president. They can't be used to uh, infer sentiment about why this ban came to be, um, which is a really interesting part of this, considering how important uh, our president's rhetoric using Twitter, uh, uh, Twitter and his speeches is compared to what the official line of the administration is and the official line of the Republican Party. Because um, there's been lots of times where you have these Republican leaders or the administrative leaders go out and say, you know, X, Y, and Z, and the Trump has then completely undercut them with a different policy narrative. Um, and that's created a lot of conflict and a lot of challenge for uh, the Republican agenda in the last you know, two years. So it errs on the side of protecting administrative action, too, for security, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it definitely uh, upholds the, the the power of that. I mean, the other thing it, it really upholds is Congress's ability to delegate that authority to the president. I mean, that's part of the decision in the majority was that they you know, firmly said that Congress has given him this power, so we can't take it back. What's interesting, so the Korematsu decision, which is a sort of a landmark civil rights decision, um, you know, civil rights litigation is focused on this question of impact versus intent, right? And so for a long time, advocates on the left would argue that um, it's not enough to focus on the intent of discrimination. You have to look at the, you know, the impact of discrimination. What's interesting here is the sides essentially flipped. What they said was the, the justices basically said this is not a discriminatory impact because this includes non-majority Muslim countries, right? Including Venezuela. Including Venezuela. But but essentially, the, the left on this side was saying, but look at the intent, because the president was making his intent clear through these these tweets. And so even though it may not have a discriminatory impact, it's grounded in discriminatory intent. And so to see that sort of, I think, in rhetorically, the, the side sort of shifted on what you should focus on in these civil rights cases. Well, we should note that probably no surprise that the court was divided. 5-4. Yeah. <laughs> 5-4. Right. Uh, and of course, if you were anywhere near social media, you heard a collective groan from the left uh, following the announcement and of that decision. And wild applause, applause from the right. Yes. Right? And then right on the heels of that, we heard that Justice Kennedy, who's actually was appointed by a conservative president, uh, announced his retirement. So uh, any thoughts on the what that is going to mean? I assume the president will nominate somebody in the next week and they'll be uh, confirmed before the midterm election because 
Um, on the one hand, it takes an issue off the table. This would certainly mo- mobilize conservative voters for the next election. I think the, 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 the odds are at least good enough that the Democrats w- might win control of the Senate and then essentially do to President Trump what the Republicans did to President Obama and say... With, Gar- uh, with Merrick Gar- Garland. Yeah, yeah, and essentially we're going to hold all your Supreme Court nominations until the next election has happened. Uh, that I think the risk is so high that, that we'll see a, a rapid confirmation of a, of a pretty conservative jurist. Corey, speaking of Congress, can you talk a little bit about what happened uh, in the House with the immigration bill there? Yeah, so this is uh, pretty interesting. The, um, you know, there was an effort, obviously, to address this, this DACA concern as well as the, the uh, detention of, of, uh, of immigrant children and families. And so there have been efforts to come up with a comprehensive immigration reform bill for some time. There are bipartisan efforts. Um, there were efforts by a handful of moderate Republicans to join Democrats to do a discharge petition, which is a rarely used procedure that would allow essentially a bipartisan bill that the leadership of the House did not favor to come out of committee and be heard on the floor. And so uh, there's actually a pretty good write-up in one of the national, I think in Politico, about that process of sort of moderate Republicans trying to work with Democrats to come up with a bipartisan solution. Republicans believed that they could get a a piece of legislation out of their own. There was a a pretty conservative bill that the Freedom Caucus had favored and a more sort of centrist solution. Uh, Raul Labrador played a big part in trying to bridge the two. Uh, Obviously recently defeated in his his run to receive the Republican nomination for governor in Idaho. Uh, he tried to bridge the two, and it appeared that there was going to be a compromise measure that came out. And as, as Luke alluded to earlier, President Trump waded into that and kind of made a mess of things and was really unclear, met with the Republican, uh, the House caucus and said, pass something. Some interpreted that as, I support this compromise that would leave the the, the chamber with moderate and conservative support. Some interpreted that as vote your conscience. Ultimately, it got 107, I think, votes, uh, which obviously is not, I mean, it's, it's not a majority of the Republican caucus, let alone a majority of the House. Um, and it appears that now this is sort of the last gasp to try to pass immigration reform. And so, you know, among the, all these controversies around dealing with DACA, around dealing with the, the detention, uh, a lot of eyes on Congress and a very, very public failure to address this policy in a meaningful way. I mean, we should note this comes on the heels, too, of when he was taking so much heat for the policy to separate families at the border. His response was that this is Democrats had failed to pass a legislation or solution. And here we see uh, what could be a considered a Republican failure to do the same thing. Yeah, I think it's, this issue has certainly split the Republican caucus between sort of more hardline Freedom Caucus members and, and more moderate members. And, and among the differences come down to things like the use of E-Verify, which is a requirement that employers verify the, the legal status of employees. That's one of the, the main things that is split with Freedom Caucus, House Freedom Caucus members saying this has to be part of any immigration fix, not just the border wall, not just the heightened um, uh, detentions at the border, but also EUCV Verify, sort of more business-minded, uh, more moderate Republicans saying that's a that's a non-starter. And so the party wasn't able to come up with, forget the Senate and whether they could get it through a, a Senate, which would require 60 votes, inability to even get a majority of the Republican House. Well, and I'll uh, throw in there when you're talking about E-Verify, I mean, that links back to what we were talking about earlier about the administrative challenges of, mm-hmm. of immigration. And that's really part of this is how do we figure out who is who, right? Uh, and so one of the, the interesting things that's gone on, uh, particularly among Democratic candidates um, in the last week, is calling for the complete dissolve, like getting rid of ICE, um, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement 
agency, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, and the border control. And so they're just like, the, that. The, our ability to administrate these policies is so terrible. Let's just get rid of the agencies altogether. And so I, I think part of what this is playing out is about policy, but the other is about how do we really administer these policies? How do we make this work? And I think that's something that neither side is thinking deeply enough about. Implementation. All right, folks, that's it for us today here at The Big Tent. Thanks for listening. Uh, We hope to talk to you well. We aren't going to talk to you. We'll talk at you <laughs> next week. With but we hope, you. Yeah, with you. We yes. hope you listen next week. We'll Tweet, see you then. Tweet, follow us on Twitter. <laughs> the Big Ten Radio. <laughs> see you there.